Amen. If you're able, turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're continuing our study here in Exodus, and as we make made, I don't know if we made a run-up to Exodus 20. I don't know how many sermons I've preached to get us here, uh, but we'll say we made a run-up to Exodus chapter 20 only to pause and stop and contemplate what is about to take place or what we are about to read that has taken place at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, and here specifically the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, what is to be known as the giving, the giving of uh, the covenant of law, or uh, this law of God is considered the covenant, this, the, this law given for the Israelites, where we recognize that they have been brought up out of Egypt. We've made it thus far. They've been brought up out of Egypt. They've been taken through the sea. They've been guided through a short trip through the wilderness, and now the uh, congregation of them is gathered at the base of Mount Sinai to send up one mediator so that he may dispense with God and God may dispense with him. Yet, as we will see, God will also act directly with the people here in this. And this is to signify for us the superiority, the peculiarity of the Ten Commandments. Follow along as I read for us Exodus 20. And for context, I'll be reading Exodus 21 through 21. And I gave uh, the passage to Chris the other night. And I just said it's part one. Part one and um, like uh, like a long tweet. I don't know if you guys are are like a long X. I don't know what it is. Uh, There's a one slash. Uh, I, I anticipate that uh, these sermons won't be belabored, but I do anticipate them uh, to be multiple. So I'm going to read for us Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall love, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people perceive the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance, while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him for help as we approach his word this morning. Oh, Lord, we ask for your loving kindness, for your mercy, for your grace, for your spirit to help us this morning as we approach these words. As we come up before your revelation, Lord, may our faith hold us fast. May Christ hold us fast that we may not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some reminders from what we've been learning about the Mosaic Covenant as it puts, as we remind ourselves of the context that we find ourselves in, that the functionality of the Abrahamic Covenant was to bring about the church, the church state nation of Israel. And Abram's covenant is the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant. And so as a covenantal foundation, we find in the scriptures, subsequent covenants are made with the same parties. Abraham's offspring, in the same kingdom realm, Canaan, with the same promises, blessed life in Canaan, with the same precepts or positive laws, and the same penalties, that is disinheritance out of the land. Therefore, what is commonly known as the Old Covenant began with Abraham and ought to be viewed collectively in such a way that the Old Covenant includes the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and for our context, the future Davidic covenant. But we also recognize that the covenant of grace was more fully revealed here, first to Abraham compared to Adam. But the formal covenant which God establishes with Abraham was not the covenant of grace. The Mosaic covenant is a development of the Abrahamic covenant in which he would fulfill nationally to Abraham's descendants. In the Mosaic covenant, God declares blessing the blessings he intends to pour out on Israel. But for the Israelites, those individual Israelites, to enjoy the blessings, they must keep the covenant. They must keep the law. Eventually, we'll see that consolidated into one Israelite, into a king. And as the king goes, so goes the nation. All to carry up, all to, all to establish, and to carry along the promise of the covenant of grace, to carry along the promise of the new covenant, one in which the prophet, priest, and king, the one mediator between God and man will be unveiled and revealed. And so that, so as our king goes, so do we go. And as we have come now to this section of the Mosaic covenant that is the law, we come and, and we remind ourselves again what we had established a few weeks back, that the law is good, that it, we, are not, we should not have an attitude of animosity toward the law of God. Though because of our sin and Adam's failure, the law does condemn us. As we stand before the law, we find that it condemns us. We don't meet it, its requirements. But it is not bad in its nature, for Paul and Romans affirm that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So then, we as those who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, have been given the mind of Christ, so that we would love God's law and say with him, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And so, as we now focus on the section of the law that comes first to the Israelites, known as the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words, and as we will see, a summation of God's moral law. So the Ten Commandments is a summation of the moral law of God. So then this law, as a covenant of works, must be preached to unregenerate sinners in order to convince them of their sin and misery and to impel them to accept the compassionate Savior offered to them in the gospel. This same law, though, as a rule of life, must be preached to believers in order to excite them to trust at all times in Christ 
for new supplies of sanctifying grace and to advance in holy conformity to him. So as we come to the Ten Commandments this morning, we're going to remind ourselves of its function within the Mosaic Covenant. But then we're going to take a time to look at its superiority compared to what is called the ordinances of the Mosaic Covenant. And as well as we'll come and we'll glean from John Calhoun's Law and Gospel We'll come to 10 rules to understand the Ten Commandments so that we may helpfully apply it to our lives, that we may helpfully seek to obey it in Christ, that we may with joy come to these 10 laws, not as a measure of our righteousness, but as an expression of our gratitude for our redemption in Christ. For as we will see To love someone is to seek to please them. We love our spouses. We want to please our spouses. Children, if you love your parents, you want to please your parents. You want to do what they're, attend to their wishes. The doting spouse is the one who dotes upon the wishes of their loved one. So if we who have been bought by the precious blood of Christ, say we love Christ, we have to seek to please him. And we are thankful that he has revealed how he is to be pleased in his word. So first, its function within the Mosaic Covenant. This is largely as a reminder. Here the Ten Commandments begin with a repetition of God's powerful deliverance an event that both establishes the basis for his dealing with Israel and continues his dealings with the uh, descendants of Abraham. We don't deny that there is grace involved in the Mosaic Covenant and in the giving of the law. For God graciously chooses Israel. They once were not a people and he makes them a people. They were of no repute. They were of no numbers. Abraham was in uh, uh, Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where he lived. He was a pagan. So God graciously chooses out of that Abraham to establish a covenant with him out of which comes the nation of Israel. So we do not deny that the Lord is gracious in choosing Israel, yet the covenant he establishes with them is not on, on the substance of grace, but it is on the substance of works. He says, Keep my law. If you disobey my law, you will be cut off. And so we don't deny that there is grace involved here. For God is gracious. God is grace. But we must see this covenant as it's revealed in his word as a covenant, as a covenant of works. That is, the benefits offered are available through obedience to law. So God demands loyalty for his, for uh, God's demand for loyalty is based on what he has done for Israel. Nevertheless, Israel must be faithful in order to remain in the blessings of the covenant. We saw that that was very clearly set forth in Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. And that it establishes the Mosaic Covenant as a covenant of works for life in the land of Canaan. That the Mosaic Covenant is not an offering of eternal life. We agreed with John Owen that this covenant at Sinai, thus made with these ends and promises, did never save nor condemn any man eternally. So its function within the Mosaic Covenant is functionally for blessed life in the land. But it is, uh, as it relates to the Ten Commandments, it has a far more reaching in its uh, previous revelation and its subsequent revelation, and it's a far more reaching relevance. And we see that in its superiority. And the way we can look at its superiority is we must come to understand something about God's law. That when God gives law, 
there is law that is associated with his character, his eternal character, and there is law that is uh, covenantal, that is associated with the covenants that he makes with individuals or with peoples. We call these this division of the law moral law and positive law. So John Calhoun in his treatise on the law and gospel says the natural law of God or the law of nature is that necessary and unchangeable rule of duty which is founded in the infinitely holy and righteous nature of God. All men as the reasonable creatures of God are and cannot be but or cannot but be indispensably bound to it. A.W. Pink says that this law expresses the mind of the creature, or the creator, excuse me, expresses the mind of the creator and is binding upon all rational creatures. It is God's unchanging moral standard for regulating the conduct of all men. I'll give uh, one text that points us in this direction, but my goal is that as we go through the Ten Commandments in the coming weeks is to take each commandment and show it's established prior to the giving of the law here at Sinai so that we may see that it is of eternal significance, that it is uh, of moral significance, and it is not ever-changing. It is not something that can be done away with, for we'd have to do away with the character of our Creator. So Paul in Romans 2, 14 through 15 says this about Gentiles. He says, for when Gentiles, and we know Gentiles, non-Jewish people, people that are outside of the giving of God's special revelation. uh, It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. So he's saying those that who do not have them written down for them do instinctively things of the law. So they seek to uh, worship a God or gods. They seek to obey that God. They seek to have peace with their neighbors in some fashion. Even cannibals have rules of murder for you can't cannibalize each other. They may cannibalize other tribes, but they wouldn't cannibalize each other. So even in them, where we think the, the, the commandment that thou shalt not murder has totally broken down. They still have laws that regulate it. Okay, so there is a, even, even though it is uh, broken and distorted by a fallen nature, it, it's still there. We can see there uh, through that and see it existing. So for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, this is still Romans 2, 14 and 15, are a law to themselves in that they show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternate, alternately accusing or else defending them. So Paul in Romans 2, 14 and 15 is saying, look, you can see that Gentiles can act Morally. So we recognize there are those that don't know Christ. They can act according to outward works morally. If our, as, as our nation quickly devolves, our Western society quickly devolves into lawlessness, we see the results of that. There's no longer a sense of morality. Yet even then, amongst those groups, Why do they put us out? Why would they put us out? Well, because they have a morality. They have a sense of right and wrong. And if you say that these things are wrong, well, that makes you wrong. That makes you a sinner. That makes you a heretic. So we see that there is a law among those that don't know Christ, but we certainly can see that there's a law among those who weren't delivered the Jewish scriptures. Hammurabi's code. We, we study it in Western civilization. There are many laws in that code that reflect the Ten Commandments. Why is that? Because they were created in the image of God, and so they were created with a conscience. 
And that conscience is still governed by the covenant of works, which the moral law of the covenant of works is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so we see that there is a law that is directly tied to the Creator, to the Creator's character, His unchanging moral standard. And so it regulates the conduct of all rational creatures. But God saw fit to add to that law a positive law or a covenantal law. Why? Well, covenantal law is law that offers uh, a super blessing upon obedience or an extra blessing, an added blessing upon obedience in the garden. The positive law of the garden, the covenantal law of the garden was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam didn't eat of the tree and obeyed the positive law, rightly we can, we'll see that we can, out of that, know that he couldn't break that law, yet keep the moral law of God, for they are connected once God... Um, gives the positive law, they're, they're inextricably connected until he does away with that covenant. But we see that Adam was offered, was given this positive law on top of the moral law to give him a better state. He offered him eternal life. He offered him a consummated righteousness. We know Adam fails this positive law, but it is positive law. The positive law of God comprises those institutions which depend merely upon his sovereign will and which he might never have prescribed, and yet his nature always continued the same. So in other words, we recognize that um, Adam owes, owed to God moral obedience apart from do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because Adam was a creature. He owed to God moral obedience. As a creature, he owed that to his creator. And the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not evil until God said, don't eat of it. It wasn't arbitrary in that way because it's tied up in the decree of God, his sovereign will. But as it relates to it as a law in and of itself, it wasn't evil in and of itself until God says, do not, did, do not eat. Now, I don't believe that Adam had access to it and was just chomping down on it. And then God said, oh, by the way, that tree you've been eating, stop eating it. I don't think that's the chronology of the, of the garden. But... We recognize that it becomes much clearer as we get into the Mosaic Covenant for everybody in this room is wearing probably mixed uh, threaded clothing. Maybe we enjoyed some shellfish this last week. Maybe we participated in eating pig, some unclean animals, some maybe uh, we, we didn't thoroughly wash our hands appropriately after handling blood or some other type of substance like that? Why? Because that positive law was for the Mosaic Covenant, for the Old Covenant. So the positive law of God comprises those institutions which depend merely upon His sovereign will. Our confession puts it this way, besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only for the time of reformation are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. Where do we see this? Well, in one place we see it is in Ephesians 2, again, 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Paul has established that the Gentiles were outside 
uh, the people of God. They were alienated. And now he's saying, you've been brought near. How, how have you been brought near? Well, because there was this barrier between Jew and Gentile, and it was broken down. What was that barrier? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. The law of commandments contained in ordinances. There, Paul differentiating between moral law and positive law. These ordinances that were given to the Israelites were established for a certain time. A certain time until the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the fulfillment of those ceremonial laws. And though it's not my intention this morning to speak of the judicial aspect, that which governed Israel as a nation, we can also see that we don't go for verbatim instruction to establish the laws of nation from the Mosaic Covenant. That wasn't its purpose. It wasn't to be a universal law for all nations. It was to be a particular law for a particular nation for a particular time. But that which remains in both ceremony or the moral duties and the judicial aspect of the law, that would remain is that which pertains to its moral relevance, its connection to the moral law of God. So the moral law has perpetual relevance. Positive law has temporary relevance, has covenantal, I should say, relevance. So if in any way the old covenant is brought back to life, that old covenant law comes with it. That which Scripture says was fulfilled in Christ. Something we can't affirm. So the moral law has perpetual relevance. Well, how do we see that here in uh, Scripture? The moral law's perpetual relevance can be seen in the very fact that these were written by the finger of God himself, not written upon parchment, but on tables or tablets of stone. And this argues towards their permanent nature. The Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God, spoken by the angel of the Lord. Deuteronomy 9. When I went up, this is Moses in the second giving of the law, this second giving of the law is now given to Israel as they're ready to take possession of the land. And so now they are, they are given the law and in some places it's expanded, in some places it's not mentioned anymore. Why? Because as the positive law can change and is temporary, it changes and expands. Why? Because they're now entering into a new uh, time period of their covenant. They're taking possession of the land. So he says, when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, which the Lord had made with you, then I remained on the mountain 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain. So there, not only were they written on tablets of stone, but Moses is saying the Lord spoke them to Israel. Moses is not in, in an in-between way for this law. He's not, it's not mediated to them through Moses. Why? Because it's speaking to its uh, perpetual relevance, its superiority to the, the positive law. They were all... Uh, so written by the fear of God, and they were all them, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. It came about at the end of forty days and nights that the Lord gave me two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. In Acts chapter seven, when Stephen is recounting the history of the Israelites, but now in light of the revelation of Christ. He says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together 
this is speaking, speaking of Moses. This is Acts 7 and verse 38. This is the one who was with the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. So here we have the, uh, this theophany of, of, of God as we see as a foreshadowing of the, of the revelation of the second person of, of the Trinity in the angel of the Lord. And there is a mediating of this law in that way. And then we can see just in a couple pages over as it relates to the rest of the Mosaic law in Exodus 24, verse 4. It says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Moses was not out there with a chisel. Chink, 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 chink. Okay, Moses wrote them down, assumingly on parchment. And the last part is when we will see when the Ark of the Covenant is built. What is placed in the Ark are the Ten Commandments. What is placed outside the Ark are the ordinances. So showing that we come to the Ten Commandments as a summation of God's moral law. Why? Because when we come to them, we don't get to pick and choose which ones we like, which ones more are attuned to our uh, preferences, which ones fit into uh, our life more than the others. We come to them and we see in them that which pleases our Lord, that which he says he meditates day and night. And so it's helpful for us to see this distinction because as we go through these Ten Commandments, we do see there is positive additions to it. And we'll look at that specifically as it relates to the Fourth Commandment, but there are other commandments that relate to positive institutions. Yet, that's why we say it's a summation of the moral law and not a, um, a giving of it in a verbatim way or in a, in a strict sense so that we would say, well, the Sabbath is the seventh day and that's the day we ought to gather on because it says it in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is a summation of God's moral law and so we'll see that there is a moral precept and positive um, application, positive as in covenantal application. So finally, if we've understood hopefully something of its function in the Mosaic Covenant, now we see of its superiority to uh, covenantal law. We'll see, and by the way, when I say superiority, we're going to see that in Christ's um, coming, when he comes and he uh, is obeying these commandments, both covenantally and morally, in thought, word, and deed, he does so in a revelatory way also. He does so to reveal that there are weightier things of the law. And that is what he's talking about. He's talking about the moral aspect of the law compared to its covenantal aspect. So finally, it's understanding. So these rules are not uh, one of my making, but I was really blessed by them out of uh, John Calhoun's book, and so I, I trust you will be also. Rule number one, where a duty is required, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is required. And we can see uh, partly that out of Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he has something to share with one who is in need. So in other words, thou shalt not steal. It's forbidden to take what you don't own. Has the connected um, requirement that you ought to work 
and earn your keep. And not just that, thou shalt not steal, is that in not giving to those your neighbor in need, you're actually stealing from them because you've been given and blessed by God so that you may share with those in need. And I'm not speaking of anything uh, wokeness or we're not talking uh, laws of the nation. I'm talking about laws of the people of God as it pertains to their expression of gratitude to Christ for his redemption. So where one duty is required, the contrary sin is forbidden. Where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is required. We're going we're gonna, to ex- you know, exercise these rules as we go through the Ten Commandments in the coming weeks. Rule number two, where a duty is required, every duty of the same kind is also required. And where a sin is forbidden, every sin of the same sort is prohibited under one duty. All of the same kind are commanded, and under one sin, all of the same sort are forbidden. So when the Lord commands us to have no other gods before him, he requires us to know and acknowledge him to be the only true God and our God, and to love, worship, and glorify him accordingly. Have no other gods before me is accompanied by, well, then we worship him, love, worship, and glorify him accordingly. You see how the one uh, requirement is joined by like requirements. So when Christ says, do not, you have, you have heard, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you have uh, looked upon a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. That like sin was associated with what was forbidden in thou shall not commit adultery. Rule number three, that which is forbidden is at no time to be done. But that which is required is to be done only when the Lord affords opportunity. What God forbids is sin and is never to be done. But what he requires is always our duty, yet every particular duty is not to be performed at all times. Consider the um, command that the Lord God is to be worshipped sacredly. We are called to worship God, yet we are not to hold a worship service every day. But we are called to not commit adultery. We're forbidden from adultery. There's no time to commit adultery. There's a time, a right time to worship God as it is it, as afforded opportunity, but there is no time to commit adultery. So, Rule number four, whatever we ourselves are commanded to be, do, or forbear, we are obliged to do all that is possible for us to do according to our places and stations in society to make others around us to be, do, or forbear the same. So whatever sin is forbidden or whatever precept is required, whatever sin is forbidden, forbidden to us also forbids us to partake with others in it, either by example, advice, conveyance, or by giving them occasion to commit it. 1 Timothy 5.22, be not partakers of other men's sin, keep yourself pure. So we see whatever sin is forbidden for us also forbids us to partake in with others. We shouldn't be going with the flow. We shouldn't be certainly tempting others to sin. Rule number five, the same duty is required and the same sin is forbidden in different respects and several and even all the divine commands. The trans- in other words, the transgression of one precept is virtually a breach of all. James 2.10, whoever, who keep, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. I don't have it in here because there's 10 rules, but we can see in the garden when Adam takes of the fruit and eats of it, he breaks all 10 commandments. He takes what is not his He's worshiping his flesh and not the Lord. I said I wouldn't go over it, so I'll stop at those two. 
If I get on a roll, I'll get there. But the precept is the transgression of one is virtually a breach of the all. You can't say, you know what, I've been really good at not lying this week, but I've been really bad at taking the Lord's name in vain. That doesn't comport. Though you may be expressing the sin in a very specific way, but in that, we virtually break all. And why do we say this? Because we're exemplifying the character of our creator such that we diminish his character by saying we can obey some but disobey others so that we can be sort of approved by him. No. If you break one, you've broken them all. In other words, you stand accused. You are guilty. Rule six, where a duty is required, the use of all the means of performing it aright is required. And where a sin is uh, forbidden, every cause and every occasion of it are prohibited. So where a duty is required, the use of all the means of performing it aright is required. So in other words, when something is required, we are to engage in all the means uh, necessary to do that, as well as when the sin is forbidden, we are to um, disengage from every instance of it. Rule number seven, no sin is at any time to be committed in order to avoid or prevent a greater sin. We must not do evil, as Romans 3.8 says, we must not do evil that good may come. The very least sin ought not on any account whatever to be committed. None of the dispensations of adorable providence lays a man under a necessity of sinning. James 1.13, let no man then say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. No sin at any time is to be committed in order to avoid or prevent a greater sin. Again, in bringing now, we're getting into the eighth rule and things are getting kind of heavy here because now we're starting to see like, golly, I don't know how many times I've done the lesser of evil. I don't know how many times I've justified this action because at least it wasn't as bad as that or, or to what perceived preventing a greater sin. Yes, stand condemned at the whole law of God, at the weight of it. Because if you don't see yourself condemned by the law, then you stand before God in your own righteousness. Brothers and sisters, that is not enough. That is not enough to stand before a holy and righteous judge. Rule number eight, the commandments of the second table of the law um, I, I didn't mention this, but the, the law is divided into two tables as the Lord divided it by saying there is the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, the first four commandments pertaining to our obligation to God and the last six commandments pertaining to our obligation to man, love God, love neighbor. The commandments of the second table of the law must give the, t- the command. Commandments of the second table of the law, love neighbor, must give place to those of the first when they cannot both be observed together. Our love of our neighbor, for instance, ought to be subjected to our love of God. Where do we see this? In, and do we, are we violating the law of God by not loving our neighbor. No, we're actually upholding the law of God because we are loving our neighbor in truth. And here's an example, Luke 14, 26. And we are enjoined to hate, that is, to love in a less degree, father and mother for Christ. When our love of them comes at any time in competition with our love for him, it, we come to the point of breaching the first commandment, have no other gods before me. In Matthew ten thirty seven, when our love for our nearest relations and our dearest friends becomes inconsistent with our love for Christ, 
The former must yield to the latter. We must prefer Christ and God in Christ to all other objects of our esteem and affection. So we cannot love our neighbors more than we love God. Primary to loving our neighbors is loving God. That is why it's the first four are summed up as the greatest commandments. Yet the second is like it in the words of our Savior. Rule number nine, I'll, I'll actually uh, go back to this and we experienced this um, during it was under our conviction here as a church and and I will say that as we come to these things some of these things need interpretation and there's charity to be given when there's a difference of of understanding and we and we extended that during uh, COVID but during COVID we would not agree with those who said love your neighbor don't gather hold on the first four commandments direct us to worship our God on his appointed day in his appointed way and to gather in his name. Maybe it looked different when we did, but we weren't going to be able to love our neighbor while not loving God. That's one example. Rule number nine, in our obedience, we should have a special and consistent, constant respect to the scope and final end which the Lord aims by all the commandments in general or by any one of them in particular, the great end at which God aims in general in subordination to his own manifest glory is perfect holiness of heart and life in his people, even as he himself is holy. Philippians 3.13, be holy as I am holy. The end of of the law is not self-righteousness, is not a right standing before God so that we can accomplish it in, in our efforts. We are to be holy as God is holy. And so we must keep that in mind as we come to the Ten Commandments, for we may find that we have kept them outwardly, yet that is not the standard of holiness. Rule 10, the beginning and the end, as well as the sum of all the commandments, is love. Romans 13.10, love is the fulfilling of the law. 1 Timothy 1.5, the end of the commandment is love. As I mentioned before, Christ, when asked what is the greatest commandment, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The beginning and the end, as well as the sum of all the commandments, is love. And here is our connection as believers in Christ who perfect, who, who perfectly fulfills the law's demand and perfectly provided the satisfaction of its curses. This is our connection here as believers in Christ. Because A.W. Pink says the supreme test of love is the desire and effort to please the one loved, as I said before. And this, measured, this is measured by conformity to his known wishes. Love to God is expressed only by obedience to his will. Only one has perfectly exemplified this, of whom it is written, I will delight to do your will, O my God. Yea, your law is within my heart, but we ought so to walk even as he walked. Simple but searching is that word of his. He that has my commandments and keeps them is he that loves me. Again, it is written, by this we know that we love, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. So we see love as law. Love is, um, Christ expresses love and Christ in his person and work is the gospel but the gospel isn't love God and love neighbor. The gospel is you are loved for God so loved the world. But the supreme test of love is the desire and effort to please the one loved. So then the law is a covenant of works must be preached to the unregenerate sinners. See the standard of holiness and find yourself lacking. 
in order that we may convince them. Convince them that they're sinners. Convince them that they're condemned. And then impel them to accept the compassionate Savior offered to them in the gospel. Who has perfectly obeyed its precepts. Who has also perfectly satisfied its curses. He who knew no sin became sin for us. A propitiation for our sins. And if that's you, if, if you have not yet seen Christ as judge, as, as God as judge, if you've not yet seen yourself as unholy, and I don't mean that you don't like the consequences of your actions, because when you get angry, people are sad, or when you get drunk, you have a headache, or you do weird things, or, or any other sins that you can think of, and you don't like the consequences. I'm not talking about that type of conviction. I'm talking about a conviction of heart that says, it's not just that I've sinned against my neighbors or myself, it's that I've sinned against a holy God. I have not met his standard of righteousness. So you don't then take upon the law again and say, well, I'll do better tomorrow. Try harder, do better. No, look to Christ. He offers himself and his righteousness in the gospel freely on the condition an instrument of your faith alone. And if that is you, that you have taken hold of Christ by faith, taken hold of his righteousness, received his sacrifice on your behalf, then this law is not done away with so that it is no longer referential in your life. It is now a, a rule of life. And as it is a rule of life, and we recognize as those who still deal with the effects of a fallen nature, it should also take us to Christ. And we go to Christ for new supplies of sanctifying grace and to advance in holy conformity to him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word is truth. May by your spirit we be sanctified in truth. Condemned in Adam. Righteous in Christ. Corrupt in the flesh. Pure in spirit. Dead in our trespasses and sins alive in our new nature to righteousness of God. Help us, Lord, for we are a stumbling people, yet you are a faithful Lord. Help us to love your law as Christ loved it. May it guide and direct us in our gratitude to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.